Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance... Stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is the Yahoo Sports NBA Podcast. Hosted by Chris Mannix. From interviews. Let's bring in John Wall. He's Reggie Miller. Bring in Eric Spolstra. To the latest NBA news. To insights you won't get anywhere else. Rioting is bad. You shouldn't riot. Past episodes of the podcast can be downloaded in the iTunes Store and Google Play. Why wouldn't you go back? Subscribe and leave a rating or comment. Here he is. Speaking of guys putting their foot in the mouth. Chris Mannix. Yes. All right, welcome back to another uh, Yahoo Sports NBA podcast. And we've got a special NBA Finals preview for you this week. uh, I'm going to check in with two of the best beat writers on the Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors beat. We're going to begin with Jason Lloyd, who's the uh, longtime Cavs beat writer, currently the editor-in-chief over at The Athletic. Um, He's as well-versed as anybody on LeBron, on this Cavaliers team. And we'll talk about LeBron's uh, play during this recent conference finals uh, the supporting cast around him, and exactly what the Cavs can do, if anything, to win a series like this. A series they're going in as massive underdogs uh, against Golden State. So Jason will be up first. A little bit later on, we'll check in with Mark Medina, who covers the uh, Warriors for the uh, San Jose Mercury News. Uh, Mark's terrific on that beat. He was in Houston for Game 7 uh, earlier this week, been covering that series all throughout, and, and all the uh, Warriors stuff throughout the playoffs. 
uh, for that matter. So we'll get Mark's thoughts on where the Warriors are right now, the injury issues, uh, Steph Curry, how's his health, how's his conditioning, uh, Kevin Durant, everything with uh, Mark Medina. Stick around for that. As always, if you want to support this podcast, very easy way you can do it. Head over to Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple. It's easy. It's free. It's the best way to make sure that we do this podcast week after week. And uh, with that, let's check in with uh, Jason Lloyd over at The Athletic. All right, joining me first this week is uh, the editor-in-chief of The Athletic in Cleveland, one of the most knowledgeable guys on the Cavaliers beat. And he became he was this close to getting his first uh, month of June off in a while. He's Jason Lloyd. What's up, Jason? So close. So tantalizingly close, Chris. I mean, look... <laughs> We we know that that you know covering the finals, you know, good traffic, good for your website. Obviously, a fledgling you know kind of project like the Athletic. But is there a small part of you that's like, all right, guys, just just bow out. Let me let me take a couple of weeks off. There was a part of me that thought that in April when <laughs> we went to a Game Seven in Indiana. It's like, wow, I've never had a summer off before. <laughs> What's that going to feel like? Uh, and then no, here we go again. So. Yeah, I mean, we really enjoy covering this team with the people that we cover it with. Uh, both locally and nationally, so it's fun to keep that going. But sure, by this point in the year, I think everyone's pretty exhausted. It, it's got to be safe to assume that that this has been the wildest of the four years that LeBron has been back. But in what ways for you, you know, covering this team and, and seeing it up close? I mean, how how different has it been? How crazy has this year been for the Cavs? Oh, I the day the Kyrie trade was announced announced, I had a feeling that this year was going to be kind of crazy. And then certainly when he was traded, and then, you know, the details surrounding the trade, it became pretty evident that this was going to be a wild ride. Uh, You know, I I thought, I I wrote going into the playoffs that this was going to be LeBron's most difficult challenge since he, you know, since he sort of entered championship mode, um, you know, around the time when he left for Miami. This was going to be his most difficult battle to get to the postseason or to get to the finals. And certainly that's proven to be true. So many changes of this team in the, in the, just the transformations that it's made from the the Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder days and Dwayne Wade coming in and Dwayne, you know, didn't, that arrival didn't really sit well with a lot of people, both on the team and, you know, decision makers weren't really thrilled with the idea of it. And, you know, it's just been, a, it's just been a toxic environment at times. Uh, they did their best to clean it up, but it left them with, not a lot of time to take a rebooted roster into the playoffs, and certainly the guys that they acquired, a lot of them have been a dis- disappointment. Uh, it's just been, from start to finish, it's been an exhausting wild ride. You talked about the the challenge that LeBron James faced this year, and it, and it was incredible, from just the roster turnover to going into the postseason with a, a weaker team these he's had in years past and you know, maybe a stronger uh, Eastern Conference, having to go seven games twice in the playoffs, I mean, what he did, especially in this postseason, uh, you know, what stands out to you about it? I mean, was this his his? I mean, was this his most impressive postseason that you've seen? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I've, I've people think I'm crazy. I've said this is his best season of his career, and it may not show that way statistically. He may have had other years where you can make the case where he's had a better year statistically, but just everything that they've endured to play in all 82 games for the first time in his career. Uh, you know, he's now at 100 games, which matches the most he's ever played in the season ever. And obviously he's going to break that with, with the finals yet to come. Uh, it's, but to me, it's been his most impressive season. And the thing that stands out really to me 
is what he just did in game six and seven against Boston, to play 94 minutes in 48 hours. 94 minutes. Mm-hmm. He played an entire game seven on a bad leg. And he told me afterwards that the leg was smoking. He said you could cook eggs on that smoking a little bit. Uh, you know, we've seen other guys miss a significant amount of time with the type of injury, but the, with the way that Larry Nance rolled up the back of his foot, that could knock a guy out for a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. And he stayed the game and kept going and came back, you know, 48 hours later and played an entire game, did not come out at all. Now the pace of the game was slower, certainly okay, fine, but still played an entire 48-minute game without coming out on a bad leg. It was remarkable. Yeah, and, and I kind of wrote about this, and, and, and I do think that the, the, the greatest of all time argument is kind of foolish right now, and, and this was a great example of it because LeBron's not done. I mean, he's 33 right. and can still be, do a lot more before his, his career is over. But I, I'm of the position, Jason, I wonder what you think, I don't know that any other player in NBA history could have taken that team and brought them to this point. It's no disrespect to Jordan or Bird or whoever you want to put on that list, but what LeBron did both offensively, defensively, as a facilitator, I don't think there's a player in in the history of the game that could have done it. You're not going to get an argument out of me. Mm. I totally agree. Uh, You know, this... Think about how little they're getting from guys. You know, Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood were brought here to be significant pieces, They've got nothing out of them. And Larry Nance, I thought, would could play a, a nice role in, in the Boston series. And he was a disaster in, in game seven. He couldn't stay he couldn't stop fouling people. Hmm. And LeBron just kept battling through. Nobody could make a shot. You know, guys that he should be able to count on, like J.R. Smith, who's hit huge shots in finals games at Oracle Arena, could not throw it in the ocean on the road in that conference final series. These are guys that he should be able to count on. And nobody could make a shot. And he just kept persevering and kept persevering. It was it was incredible to watch, uh, and and that's why I say for my money, this has been his best season of his career. Okay, so before we get to what LeBron has to do in this finals, you mentioned a bunch of guys on this team that have you know been a mixed bag, mostly in the negative column uh, in this postseason. Outside of LeBron, who's the most important player for Cleveland? You know, going into this finals against Golden State. I mean, I think you have to say Kevin Love which is hysterical because a couple of years ago, the Cavs were wringing their hands thinking we can't play Kevin Love against the Warriors. Yeah. And really, Kevin hasn't been the problem the last couple of years in this, in, in this matchup. He hasn't been as bad defensively as, as you would think. He's kind of held his own, I think. Uh, but, he, you know, first of all, the, the Cavs are battling such an uphill battle in this. I, I think that's pretty obvious. But Kevin's got to make shots. And, you know, he's been up and down this postseason as well. You know, he's... To my knowledge, he, there's not going to be any problem. He should be able to play Thursday. Obviously, he missed Game 7 against Boston with the concussion. He is expected to be cleared from the protocol and, and be available for Game 1. They, they've got they've got to get big games out of Kevin. Uh, and beyond that, these guys have to make shots. And so I, I would put J.R. Smith in that category as well. As somebody who really has disappointed at times in this postseason, he's played well at home. He's vanished on the road. Um but he, he's, he's got to make threes. If you have any sh- chance of staying within 20 points of the Warriors, you got to make threes. So for my money, that's Kevin and Jr. Can you play Tristan Thompson in a series like this? Because there's no Zaza here. There's no Bogut here. You know, they're going to go pretty small. I mean, Looney will be right. out there at times. I mean, you know, Thompson was such a huge factor in this Eastern Conference playoffs, and, and his defense on Horford was terrific. Uh, but is, is he... Uh, a significantly lesser, uh, uh, you know, asset in a series like this. You know, he was fantastic in, in the championship year against them. He had a great series, and he was terrible last year. And you know, I, I keep going back to early in his career. 
Tristan said one like the hardest player for him to go up against was Zaza. And and then there it was last year where Pachulia was kind of in his way and, and I think Pachulia had a had an impact on, on Tristan struggling so badly in the finals last year. I think they have to play him this year. I, I think what he brings on the on the offensive glass and offensive rebounding, it's so critical to be able to extend possessions to get second and third looks, especially when the Cavs have struggled shooting the ball like they have. You know, I know that there's the argument, and, and the Cavs believe if you don't score, if you're not a scoring threat, it's hard to keep you on the floor against Golden State, and I understand that. But the way that Tristan has kind of showed himself here in this postseason, he, he's kind of looking like the Tristan of old again. I think absolutely there's a spot for him. Um, you know, it's going to be hard to play two non-shooters at one time, certainly. But I, I think he's going to get a shot, and they'll, they'll, see, they'll assess it as they go. But I, I think just from what he brings from an offensive rebounding standpoint, I think they've got to keep him on the floor. You know, I, I thought Ty Lue made some nice adjustments in, against Boston, you know, beginning when the series shifted back to Cleveland with Thompson kind of mirroring Horford with the decision to put right. LeBron early on Jalen Brown. He had a, a pretty underrated series, I thought. Some, some gaffes there, obviously. The Corver stuff in, in Game 5 was was a noticeable one. But as you look at this, this Warriors series, do you think that Ty takes any kind of a page out of what the Rockets did in terms of switching everything, it seemed like Houston had some success against the Durants and and some of these perimeter guys with all the switching. Now, that's generally speaking not Cleveland's M.O. defensively. That's more Boston's bag, actually, when it comes to to defense. But uh, how do you think they they change, if at all, defensively in a matchup like this? Well, Ty likes to switch everything. He he likes that. They've done it before. You know, Jeff Green, for Kevin, allowed them to to go into switch-everything mode. Uh Kevin is the one that prevents them from, from playing a switch everything type right. defense. Where a lot of times and now we get into the debate of are they gonna go with Tristan or Kevin? You know, if they go Kevin at the five and Jeff Green at the four and bring Tristan off the bench, which they could do, now you're into a switch one through four and show at the five or blitz with the five. That's what they've done with Kevin in the past. He he's the blitzer and they switch one through four. Um we'll have to wait and see. You know, I don't think they're gonna switch with Kevin on the floor. But that would be, I think that would be Ty's preference if you're talking defensively. How, how are they going to approach Golden State? I think he would love to get into a switch-everything mode. Uh, I just think Kevin prevents that from happening. You, you clearly called the Jeff Green pickup, right? Start of the season, like Jeff Green would be the impact player at the end of a conference finals. I mean, I, you know, it crossed my mind, of course. I mean, as anyone. It's reporter. amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember when they signed him, uh, we were in Vegas, and – when when the when it came when word came down that they were going to sign Jeff Green and and it was it was actually during a Cavs summer league game and I was talking to Ty about it and Ty was thrilled and Ty's like I love that guy I had him in Boston he will be just fine like I got him and Jeff was coming off the worst season of his career shooting wise and and you know Ty's point was he's just been in a bad spot the last couple of years he wasn't in a situation that was good for him obviously last year being in Orlando and, and Ty was adamant he's going to play a key role for us Ty was you know, crucial in recruiting him to come here. And of all things, Jeff winds up being your starter in game seven of the conference finals. And he delivered, you know, he just had a very up and down year. I thought he was quietly having a really good year before the midseason trades kind of overhauled everything. And then they started having to play him out of position a little bit more. But up until then, he was, he was very quietly putting together a really good year. And, you know, if he's, if he can make a couple of threes, which is a huge, if that's a big ask, you know, even even in the conference finals, and that's game seven, he was, I think, two and nine from three. If he's even in the two of five, two of six range, it's such a huge help 
uh, because teams are going to ignore him. Teams are going to let him shoot as much as they want. And a lot of times he has struggled to make them pay for that. But he does, Ty loves what he gives them in other areas defensively, the fact that he can guard so many different positions. He's another ball handler, which they haven't had. You know, in the past, in this Golden State series, one of the things that they lamented was they had two guys who could handle the ball, LeBron and Kyrie, and that was it. And Jeff, they feel like, is a guy who can handle the ball a little bit, even create a little bit for some others. Uh, but he's so inconsistent. That's been the knock against him his entire career. He's great for two games, and he disappears for three. And you just don't know what you're going to get. So uh, we'll see. But he certainly, you know, for signing the guy for the league minimum, he's certainly more than paid off. Yeah, and I, I think Boston really underestimated him coming into that game. I mean, they said all the right things publicly, but – uh, I I think behind the scenes they they didn't believe Jeff Green had a game seven like that in him. I mean they they, they tipped their cap to what he did in game six, but you know the the idea that you know I, I think they thought it was kind of funny the idea that the Cavs would be better defensively because they could switch with Jeff Green. Um, I think they thought it was kind of funny the idea that Jeff Green could be a threat from the outside, but I mean he he made him pay. I mean he was the difference in a game like that. Yeah, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him for taking everything that you just said. Yeah. I would have thought the exact same thing. And, you know, you just give Jeff Carl the credit in the world for, for delivering. Yeah. All right, so on LeBron, you've been around this guy for so long. What do you think he has left? I mean, you mentioned the minutes he played, the, the stress on him, um, the strain of getting to this point. You can use whatever kind of wording you choose. But, I mean, he's done a lot. I mean, and he's going into a series where he's going to have to do more than he's ever done before for this team to have a chance. Where do you think he is physically? I used to be concerned. I'm not anymore. Not after what I just saw in 6-7. and seven. Not after I saw a guy injure his leg in at the end of Game 6 or in the middle of Game 6 and come back and play 48 on it in Game 7. That's insane. Because during the Indiana series, when he tried to play the entire Game 7, I was the one saying, this is stupid. you got to get him out. He's going to run out of gas. He's not going to have enough left. And sure enough, you know, at the end of the third quarter, he had to leave with cramps. He was cramping up. But I think he hit, I think in the in the Boston series, I think he paced himself a little bit better than he did against Indiana. When you saw moments of Game Six where George Hill ran the offense for three and four possessions at a time, and LeBron just walked up and down the floor during those possessions, and it bought him a couple minutes, it bought him a minute and a half of court time where he didn't have to do a whole lot. And we saw that again a little bit in Game Seven. I think he just did a little bit better job of, of like I said, pacing. You know, the fact that there's two days off between games one and two in the series is significant. That's that's a big deal. You know, he's going to get a couple of days of rest here between the end of the Boston series and game one on Thursday. That's what, he gets three days off there, and then he's going to get two days off between one and two. So that's that's important. You know, I don't think, I don't think he's going to play all 48 in game one, but he's going to be at 42, 43. And having that extra day off of his feet will, should be able to help him for game two. Um, Beyond that, you know, I, I just he has surpassed every expectation that we should rightfully place on him in terms of what a what a human body should be able to, to withhold or with, to be able to endure, and he just keeps exceeding it. So I don't I don't worry so much anymore. And, and Ty kept that was Ty's point all along. He's like, man, we don't have a choice. He's got to play. I don't want to hear about minutes. He's got to play. He's got to be out there. That's the way our team is. He's just he's got to do it. And it's funny that you know in 2015 when the Cavs had all those injuries. And it was basically LeBron and a bunch of uh, just a bunch of guys in the finals against the Warriors. And I asked him before Game Two, after they knew Kyrie was going to be out, how many minutes he could play in the finals game. And he said 40, 41, or forty-two. That he plays too hard. He said, "I think it's impossible to play all forty-eight in a finals game." And yet he did it. And what was basically, I mean, Game Seven of the Conference Finals is basically a finals game. And and he did it. 
you know, so I, I don't worry anymore about his limitations or, or what physically they can expect out of him because he has delivered so many times. He's got kind of a history, Jason, you know this, and he's talked about it, of kind of mailing in game once, of, of using him as kind of that feel-out game to see the way a team is, is going to defend him. I mean, he's got such familiarity with Golden State um, at this point. Do you think he, we get the same type of game from him in game one? Because, I mean, there's, if you do, there, there's no way that the Cavs can win something like that. Right. Yeah, I I mean, feel-out games normally become blowout games Yeah. When, when when he talks like that, when he does that. And I would expect that. I mean, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I fully expect Golden State to blow their doors off in game one. And, you know, they'll adjust and come back, and we'll see what happens in game two. But, you know, you would like him to be a little bit more aggressive early on. Uh, but I just I, – I mean, I don't have a good feeling about this series to begin with. And certainly game one, Golden State at home, Everything that they had to go through just to get to that point, uh, I, I I have a strong hunch game one to get ugly. You know, it, it, the, I was listening to Steve Kerr this week talk about Iguodala, and we don't know exactly where he's at, but it, he doesn't sound optimistic about this bone bruise and, and how it's responding. He missed game seven, maybe he misses uh, game one. How big a factor do you think that is for Cleveland? I mean, on one hand, you know, Iguodala is a great defender, and he's another body you put in front of. Uh, LeBron out there. On the other hand, you can kind of hide LeBron if you wanted to on Iguodala because he's not an offensive player. I mean, how, how do you think that is that affects the way the Cavs uh, play Golden State? I think I, I think it impacts the Warriors certainly. When you know Iguodala was the 2015 Finals MVP because yeah. of the way that he guarded LeBron and, and the job that he did on LeBron. So I, I absolutely think that's a big loss for Golden State. I just think that they have so much else. It, I, I don't know that it's going to make much of a difference uh, in the overall grand scheme of things unless, you know, you compound that with another injury or more foul trouble or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I, LeBron, I think that they – I don't know how to say it. You're right. They hide him defensively at times and don't ask him to do as much. or They, they put him into that free safety role where he just kind of roams the floor. Mm. Um, I, I think there's probably maybe still ways to do that. Although I think I, I've kind of maintained that I thought LeBron was at his best guarding Draymond in the, in the, against Golden State, and you know the first couple of games last year he was strictly on 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 Kevin, and the Cavs felt like they they had to keep that match up, and then finally they got away from that and they actually put LeBron on Draymond and they threw guys like Richard Jefferson on Kevin Durant, and I think that the the fact that they do have you know again Jeff Green there's that name again. I think they view him as a guy who can guard Kevin a little bit and give LeBron a little bit of a rest. Um, and, and to me, I, I still think LeBron on Draymond. Draymond can hurt you in different ways, passing, shooting, rebounding. I, I like that matchup better. Uh, you take your chances with Kevin. You know he's going to have his big nights. But I, I like the LeBron on Draymond matchup and, and use a, a rotation of guys on Kevin. So I, I remember, you know, look, you don't have a good feeling about this series necessarily. I don't have a good feeling about the series for, for Cleveland either. It's hard to. It's hard to kind of look at this matchup and say that it, there's, there's many ways outside of LeBron that it, it favors the Cavs. But I remember, Jason, in game one, you, you sitting next to me when the Cavs were down 20, and you said to me something along the lines of, that nothing this team does would surprise me. That, you know, th- this group, they could come back from you know a 20-point lead in game one. They could win this series in five. They could win it in seven. They could lose it in four. Um, it... it I took from that, like the, you know, your thoughts on the, this being a very unpredictable uh, Cleveland team. So, what has to happen for them to win? I mean, what, 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 what's their path to winning this series, which has got to be one of the most toughest they've ever had? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, 
and, and Todd likes to say all the time, we have to play fast. We have to play with pace. But that's not really true because that's the last thing the Cavs need to do is get into a running match with, with Golden State. I, I think their best odds of winning this are to slow it down, to go back to do what they did in 2015. And I understand that 15 Warriors team did not have Kevin Durant. But that 15 Cavs team was really physical, and they basically just beat the hell out of them. They used guys like Matthew Delvadova and Amon Shumpert and Timothy Mozgov, and they were just physical and just beat on them. And, and they just, they, they, you know, the term rock fight has been really popular the last 48 hours with what we saw in, in the last two game sevens. But that's how the Cavs played the entire finals, really, in 15, was slowing the game down, gooning it up to, t- to steal a phrase from Ty, and just being physical with them. That's their only shot as far as I'm concerned, is, is to play that slow game. You know, the pace of the, the last two Cavs Celtics games was under 90. They were both right around like 88, I think. That's their best chance is to just make it a slow, physical, ugly 1990s Eastern Conference series. And even then, I'm not sure I like their odds. But if you're asking what's their path to, to winning, obviously it's a healthy dose of LeBron. Guys around them have to make shots and just slow the pace down and make it a physical, tough series. Yeah. All right, let me get you out of here with uh, with this. I mean, look, every series Cleveland wins, um, we wonder what it means long-term. You know, is LeBron affected by, uh, you know, the success or failures of this team? Have you, uh, you know, prescribed to that notion that the success of the Cavaliers in the postseason can influence what LeBron does uh, in the summer, or do you think that it's it's irrelevant and he's either going to do one th- one with one thing or the other? You know, people say people who cover the team every day. We had this discussion where you know I thought we we all thought if Houston could find a way to steal the game seven, and they go into that series without Chris Paul, that the Cavs have a fighting chance to win. Certainly a better chance than they do at beating the Warriors. That they had a chance. And oh my God, how could this team, this disheveled team, actually win a championship? That's that's hard to fathom. Uh, but the only reason I said it was because I made the point I still don't think that would impact. Even if they won a championship, I don't think it would impact LeBron's offseason. If he stays in Cleveland, because of what happened with this roster, because of the Kyrie trade, because of the pieces that are here now, you know, I, I've written this plenty of times. He was really upset with the Kyrie trade. He wasn't thrilled with the roster. Obviously, it's let him down at times. He's had his frustrations with ownership over the years, certainly. He's had his frustrations with Kobe Altman. There's just a lot that he doesn't like about what's where what's happening with the Cavs. So I don't think that what happens in this series is going to have a whole lot of a bearing on what happens this summer. For my money, if he stays in Cleveland, it is for non-basketball reasons. Mm-hmm. If he leaves, it is for basketball reasons. And that's 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 the most succinct way I can put it. If he stays, it's because this is home. It's because his kids are comfortable here. It's where his wife wants to stay. That's why he's staying. But if he leaves, he's leaving because he feels like he's still there's a there's a place out there who gives him a better opportunity to win, win more championships, and that's what he's going for. Do you read anything into that clip of him uh, kind of breezing past Gilbert in the uh, on the way to the, that uh, trophy presentation? Yeah, yeah, that was funny. And and the only reason I say, I mean, listen, they don't have a great relationship. Yeah. Period. They they don't. But you know, it, it is worth countering that clip with the fact that. In the locker room post game, Dan did go over to his locker and they did they did share a moment in the locker room after the game. And Rich Paul, LeBron's agent, even kind of threw his arm around Dan and gave him half a hug. 
and they were standing there talking for a few minutes. So for as bad as that looked, as the optics of that looked on TV, I'm sure uh, they did have a little moment in the locker room together, but that doesn't change the fact that it is a very strained, frayed relationship. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, Jason, enjoy uh, yet another uh, Cleveland to Oakland uh, shuttle flight, right? Easy, you know, not, not only a, what, like an hour? Quick flight. At least there are directs. There are Cleveland and San Francisco directs, so not not bad. <laughs> well, enjoy, man. Uh, uh, doing great work on the during the season in this postseason. Uh, enjoy the next couple of weeks, and I'll, I'll see you out there. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. My thanks to Jason Lloyd for joining the podcast. And uh, now we'll turn to the Golden State Warriors, um, who are now playing in their fourth consecutive finals, looking for their third championship uh, in that stretch. Guy does a great job of uh, covering the Warriors is uh, Mark Medina, and he joins me here uh, on the podcast. What's happening, Mark? How's uh, life on the road? Oh, it's going amazing. I've been, I feel like I've been back and forth uh, between Oakland and Houston like 3,000 times within a two-week span, and I don't think it's going to be quite the frequent traveling back and forth between the Warriors and the Cavaliers um, in the NBA Finals, and I think that's to everyone's uh, frustration that there's going to be a fourth consecutive trip. But for me, this is my first go-round. I'm used to kind of spending this offseason uh, mm-hmm. in the draft room and you know going to draft workouts after my time covering the Lakers. So it's all new to me. All right, before we get to uh, you know Golden State and, and Cleveland, I want to ask you about the series that they just completed. And, you know, look, it, it, it wasn't the best series for Golden State. In, the, in game six and seven, they played, you know, four great quarters and four terrible quarters when it came to splitting the halves up uh, a little bit. When you look at that that series as a whole, did you think that in, in, that Golden State looked vulnerable at times, or do you just think Houston, you know, is just a really good team and and they played them at a high level? Well, I think it was both, but the the only time that I thought that the uh, the Warriors were going to be vulnerable was this Game Seven start in the first half. I mean, you saw the Warriors show their worst qualities in a forgettable regular season game where they just weren't bringing the full intensity and they were getting in foul trouble. I think Clay Thompson had three of his four fouls in the first quarter. They were getting a lot of turnovers. You know, I know there was one possession where Draymond Green and Kevin Durant were yelling at each other, but it felt like after the Warriors got up 2-1 that the talent level between the Warriors and the Rockets were just so steep. Obviously, the Rockets then proved otherwise, but then after Chris Paul tore his hamstring at the end of game five. At that point, obviously, the the Rockets were in control. But at that point, it just seemed like it's a numbers game. Uh, At the end of the day, the biggest thing that determines whether a team's going to advance in the playoffs is how healthy they can be. So I think the Warriors basically had secured that series ever since Chris Paul got hurt. At some point during this series, I started to wonder when Kevin Durant became Mario Chalmers. And and I say that, (laughs) I say that because, you know, especially in game seven, Draymond Green was all over him. Like, and I understand that KD made some, some, a little bit lazy plays, didn't go to the ball. And I think that's what Draymond was pissed about uh, during that game seven. But man, he he was all over KD. And I'm sure it's just, you know, I'm not sure, I guess, but I would, I would assume it's just, you know, two guys being competitive that don't have any issues off the floor, but is that the case? I mean, how would you characterize the relationship between Green and Durant? I think it's been pretty good. You remember that incident in Game 7 where Draymond and Kevin Durant were yelling at each other? That reminded us a little bit of Katie's first season where there was a play, I believe, in Memphis where he was trying to go one-on-one and it wound up not working at all, and Draymond was 
getting in his ear about it. I think as sensitive as Kevin Durant might be to outside criticism, I think that he accepts Draymond's criticism full on because he doesn't sugarcoat it. There's no evasiveness. There's not any uh, you know talking behind his back. Draymond Green is someone that will say it directly to your face. But I think the fascinating thing regarding Kevin Durant's uh, play against the Rockets is it really went full circle. At the beginning of the series, Mike D'Antoni was saying it's inevitable that Kevin Durant's going to get his points for obvious reasons. He's Kevin Durant, and there's nothing you can do to stop him. We're not going to double-team him because that only means that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson are going to get theirs. And I think at that point, Kevin was just very efficient from the field. He wasn't forcing anything. He was moving in the post. He was using his footwork. He was getting the three ball down. And then once the Rockets really perfected that you know, defensive switching heavy scheme, all of a sudden Kevin Durant didn't know what to do. It didn't help that his teammates weren't making shots. But all of a sudden, he was a player that was so consumed with just going one-on-one and getting his numbers. And I think it all went full circle in Game 7 where – Kevin Durant and Steph Curry were both able to get their own in the second half. They played off of each other. And that usually hasn't been an issue all season, but all of a sudden the Rockets uh, you know, made Kevin kind of resort to his worst instincts at times. He's such a great isolation player, but when he starts doing that, and look, it's not all his fault, it's part of the play calling, but when he starts doing that, is that a, a net negative for, for Golden State? Because look, their, their entire offense under Steve Kerr has been kind of you know, pass happy, you know, create mismatches. Understand that, you know, everybody that Durant goes up against outside of maybe LeBron is is a mismatch. But when he when it becomes kind of stagnant, how 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 bad is that for Golden State? I think it's basically the only way that you can somehow stop Golden State because it's not just that you have Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson able to hit shots, but all of a sudden their defensive energy picks up and then it becomes a cyclical thing because they can get turnovers and easy baskets. And I think the thing that really befuddled me regarding Kevin Durant is even when Steph Curry was out during the season for extended stretches, first with his ankle injury, and then later on in the season with the, you know, the grade two MCL sprain in his left knee, I didn't see the Warriors trying to go ISO heavy with Kevin Durant. I didn't see Kevin Durant really trying to get his own. I found him as someone who was very deliberate and, and kind of following that old cliche of taking what the defense gives him. And there were times he definitely shot high volume, but it was always efficient. And any time his shot wasn't falling, he was passing. And I think the Rockets, because of the fact that they switched so much, they basically forced the Warriors to adopt their offense. But the problem is James Harden is a much more effective isolation player because of who he is and the fact that, you know, the Rockets run a really good system around them to do that. And here, when you saw Kevin Durant do that, the Warriors just seemed out of sorts. They, they were moving around, but they were getting frustrated with not getting the ball. And then all of a sudden, they just stopped cutting hard. And then it became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of, uh, you know, it's going to be Kevin Durant standing on his own and then hoisting up a shot that's contested. You know, Durant's going to get his in a series like this. And, and look, I, I have little doubt that he's going to play great. And, you know, the, the wild card maybe is Curry because Curry has had some unbelievable quarters, unbelievable halves. But there have been other times that he's been uncharacteristically cold, you know, from the outside, especially in the first halves of of uh, some of these games. I mean, where where do you think he is physically, conditioning-wise? I, I mean, how close do you think he is to, to being 
I think it's an interesting question because physically from a health standpoint, there's no issues. There hasn't been any minutes restrictions on Steph Curry, um, basically ever since the Western Conference Finals. I think that integration process of him getting his rhythm down and timing down all took place in the Western Conference semifinals against the New Orleans Pelicans. And I think the most encouraging aspect of all this is Curry was always driving to the rim. And I think that that showed that he was willing to absorb contact. He was comfortable getting down there full speed. But his shot wasn't always falling throughout this series. And I think a lot of it had to do with it for some reason. Steph wasn't being aggressive and wasn't trying to find his own. I think he's always of this delicate, trying to find this delicate balance where he doesn't want to be too much of a guy because he believes in Steve Kerr's whole philosophy of moving the ball. But here's the thing. And Kevin Durant said it himself, Steph Curry is the system. Uh, Everything is centered around Steph because of his really great shooting, his gravity. So when Steph takes matters into his own hands, more often than not, not, that actually becomes a thing that sparks the team to play well together and move the ball. And I think the biggest illustration of that is some of these third-quarter runs that you saw in game six and game seven, as soon as they started making a priority for Steph to get open shots and he was making a priority for himself to look for those, all of a sudden the offense looked beautiful, not just from himself, but from everyone else around him. I, I do like that in, in a series that's probably not going to be all that competitive. I mean, I guess you can never discount what LeBron can do, especially after what he did uh, against Boston, but in a series that that's probably going to be one-sided, I, I did like the shade or the the sort of shade Steph kind of threw at LeBron uh, earlier this week. When uh, to paraphrase him, I think he you know basically said that you know LeBron's great, but don't discount the other guys. I mean, throwing more praise on you know the Jeff Greens <laughs> and the Nances and the Jordan Clarksons that you're going to get from from a lot from basically anywhere else, and and also you know noting that LeBron had been great. Uh, in the Eastern Conference, I thought that was an interesting choice of words. Now, do you think we're reading too much into that, or you know, do you think that this uh, the competitive juices in Steph get going when it comes to LeBron? Yeah, I think uh, I think only Steph can throw shade at LeBron, but actually be seen as hey, he's being positive and, and praising him because the line of questioning had to do with the fact that LeBron James is carrying the Cleveland Cavaliers without any, any supporting cast. But I, I definitely think that there's there's competitive juices when you're talking about Steph Curry and LeBron, when they're talking about Kevin Durant and LeBron. I mean, I know Kevin Durant's gotten criticized for this, but I talked with him earlier this season before the Christmas Day matchup, and he reiterated that he feels like he's on the same level as LeBron James. And if you look at the resume, you look at the numbers, the body of work, it's, it's just not a comparison but Kevin Durant was making the point that, hey, I might not be better than LeBron James, but I belong in that conversation because of what he's done as a scorer and him finally an NBA championship. But I think the other things that go into play with how Steph views LeBron is basically the history. I mean, I don't think it's out of his mind as the fact that he is the guy that helped the Cavaliers overcome that 3-1 series lead. and. He's of the mind, and I know Draymond's of the mind. If he didn't get suspended in that game five, the outcome would have been severely different, and you'd be talking about, hey, can the Warriors defend their third consecutive NBA championship? And 
when I'm thinking about all this, I don't think the Cavaliers have a shot, but if they are going to make this a competitive series, they're going to have to do this in game one. That's the most prime opportunity because we don't know if Andre Iguodala is going to be able to come back uh, in time. He has missed the past four games because of a bone bruise in his left knee. I talked with him a little bit after the game last night, and he was a little bit evasive as far as if he's going to be able to come back at that point. But I'm just reading between the lines. He was saying he can walk without pain. He's been trying to run and not have any pain, but he hasn't gotten to that point yet. And he's the guy who would be the main person defending LeBron. So uh, there's a lot of interesting overlaps with all these things. You know, the the to, to go back to Durant for a second, the the, yeah. the days of, of like suggesting that Durant is a luxury for Golden State are long over. I mean, they were over – last year in the finals, a series I don't think Golden State wins without Durant. You swap out Harrison Barnes for Durant, I don't think you beat Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland played, I thought, the last three games of that series, I thought Cleveland played the best three games I've seen them play. And they only won one of those games, in large part because, you know, Kevin Durant uh, was out there. I don't think they beat uh, Houston in this series uh, without Kevin Durant. He's not... I mean, whatever the perception was when he joined Golden State, and I understand it. You know, seventy-three win team. You you join that group. You're you're basically you know ju- the jump on the bandwagon narrative was fine, but I, I don't see him as being anything but the most consequential player on that team because of what he does both offensively uh, and defensively there. Yeah, and I think when you look at the Warriors season right now, just think about it. Steph Curry missed the last ten regular season games because of, because of his grade two MCL sprain, and he had four different injuries uh, to his right ankle. They went nine and two initially when Steph Curry was out, and the main reason was because of Kevin Durant. Um, There was a lot of inconsistent play throughout this season because of just, you know, the championship hangover and some guys getting dinged up, just not really treating the regular season with the kind of defensive intensity, but he was the most productive player and most consistent player And when Steph Curry was out, I think the natural expectation was that Kevin Durant was suddenly going to be able to just carry the load by himself. And that's one of the knocks that he's gotten recently, that could he do the same thing that LeBron James could do with Cleveland? Probably not, but I think to his credit, he didn't try to suddenly become what you saw during the uh, later years in Oklahoma City where he was doing everything on his own and kind of competing with Westbrook for shots and minutes. He was basically scoring but making guys feel empowered and doing a lot of things behind the scenes um, in terms of leadership. Like I talked with Kevin about this concept of is he a leader because at the beginning of the season he was saying, I'm not the face of the franchise, Steph is. And his point was he wasn't trying to shirk responsibility or diminish anything, but he seems to be a guy that's not about trying to be demonstrative around his teammates. He wants to kind of set examples with just how hard he works and, you know, how positive he is with teammates and breaking down film with them. And I think if you didn't have that this season, you'd be talking about a Warriors team, uh, particularly because Steph was out, that might be like a fourth, fifth seed, and obviously mm-hmm. they want to get to where they are in the playoffs without that. Uh, you mentioned uh, Iguodala and and the possibility he could miss Game One, if not more. I mean, what is it about this injury? Is it just the it's not healing as fast they thought it was? Is it is it any more significant than than they thought it was? And if he's out for 
you know, let's just say the first two games of this series. I mean, how does that change what they do uh, against Cleveland? Because Iguodala the last few years has been, you know, the primary defender on Kevin, on, on LeBron James. Yeah, the injury is, is really odd because it happened at the end of game three when the Warriors were kind of blowing out the Rockets and he collided knees with James Harden. And when we asked Steve Kerr about the injury, Andre had told him directly it didn't feel like it was anything painful. You know, Steve Kerr downplayed it. And it was so much considered not an issue that he wasn't even asked about it the next day in practice. It was just kind of assumed he was going to be all right and ready to go. And then all of a sudden, later in the day, the Warriors listed him as doubtful. And I think at first, everyone thought this isn't a big deal. If you look at the regular season, anytime Andre Iguodala had any kind of minor ailment, they sat him you know, for preservation purposes. Um, and the Warriors did seem to have control of the series. But as time progressed it really struck me that he literally hasn't been able to do anything. He hasn't even gotten to the point where he can test the knee out in any kind of practice situation with running, let alone doing any kind of drills. And the way that Steve Kerr explains that, he said a bone bruise, there's a lot of, I guess, like sensitive things that go into that as far as how the pain is and the swelling. And so, Assuming that this is going to be a thing at least for the next few games, it's going to be a really interesting exercise on how Steve Kerr manages it because Andre Iguodala's absence exposed one of the Warriors' biggest weaknesses in that they are so top-heavy with their four all-stars, and underneath that, they really don't have much of a bench. Andre was that guy who provided all those you know, intangible qualities because of his experience and smarts and positional versatility. But without him there, Steve Kerr really didn't have a definitive fifth guy to choose from. I mean, sometimes he went with Kevon Looney, who's a solid defender, but he doesn't offer much defensively or offensively. Sometimes he went with a rookie, Jordan Bell, who has bursts of athleticism, but his decision-making is in question. And you saw a lot of times in the Game 7, yesterday where Draymond was getting on him repeatedly after having botched defensive assignments. And after that, it was Steve Kerr just throwing a few minutes and Nick Young here or there, Quinn Cook here or there, but by and large, it was, an, it was a net negative. And so I think when you're looking at this Cavaliers matchup, it's kind of the inverse on the Rockets because what the, what the Warriors are doing is they're trying to find different bigs different forwards that could, you know, switch on to Harden. And here I think it's going to be the opposite where, you know, they're going to have to account for their front court, obviously with LeBron, and can they find, you know, some small guys that that can do all that switching. And frankly, I don't see it beyond, you know, Draymond basically taking on the task completely. You know, I asked Jason Lloyd, um, you know, how do the Cavs win a series like this? It, it seems foolish to ask you kind of the same question about Golden State. It, it's kind of the reverse. I mean, how do they lose uh, a series like this? <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that, you know, pace is going to be a big part of this series. We saw what, what Cleveland did to Boston, slowing that game down to kind of a crawl and and making it a physical series. Is that the kind of game that, that Golden State wants to avoid? And, and, and it is there uh, a scenario that you see Golden State losing a series like this? Yeah, I don't think the Warriors are going to lose this, but as far as 
you know, if you're looking at potential weaknesses that the Cavaliers can steal a game or two, the number one thing is taking advantage of Eagle Dollar's absence because that will allow LeBron to even get even more absurd numbers. I think the danger also is taking advantage of the Warriors' apathy and just their feeling of exhaustion. They went to the complete brink against the Rockets where you had Draymond Green and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant logging like basically 45 minutes a night. And I know that this is the playoffs. I know LeBron James was carrying that heavy load, but I don't think the Warriors were quite used to that because they were breezing through so easily in the NBA playoffs in the first two rounds going eight and two. And during the regular season, their minutes were always in the low 30s, mid 30s at best. So I think those are the two biggest things. And then I think they should basically adopt what the Rockets did, where if they can find a way to force the the Warriors to go ISO heavy as opposed to you know, moving the ball, they're not good in ISO situations. I know Kevin Durant can be at times, but when you're relying way too much on it, I think it takes them out of their element. So I, I think if, it, if I'm the Cavaliers, I'm watching film on how the Rockets really switched everything and forced them to go into those plays because it played right into their hands. Is, uh, yeah, I mean, like, uh, do they do anything differently with LeBron? I mean, is, 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 I mean, I, I think he's going to have to play the series of his life. I mean, that just, that's kind of a, an understatement, an obvious statement. But, you know, after what he did against Boston, 46 minutes, 48 minutes, I mean, he's going to have to play 40-plus at least um, every single night. I mean, how do, do you think that they do anything different than what Boston tried to do, um, you know, in their series? Not necessarily. I think once, once Iguodala comes back, he'll be the primary guy. But I think what they'll do other than that is they'll just keep switching guys. I don't think they'll ever get to the point where they're double-teaming them because they're going to just accept the fact that LeBron's going to be LeBron. But if I had to guess, once, once Andre comes back, he's going to be the primary defender. I think Draymond's going to get on him a lot um, just both to lessen the workload and you know maybe that kind of intensity and history between Draymond and LeBron, you know, kind of play out elsewhere where guys are feeding off of that and and that sort of thing. But other than that, I think it's pretty cut and dry. The Warriors are going to accept LeBron James getting points because they have a lot of confidence that it's not going to account for anywhere else. You know, this is um, the, the the fourth straight time, as we mentioned, that Golden State's going to the finals. No reason to believe with this current group that it can't be five, six, or seven. Um, there are some contracts up at the end of the year, most notably – uh, Durant, but do you think there's any kind of drama to this offseason, you know, for Golden State if they mow down Cleveland? Do you expect everybody to be back? I definitely expect everyone to be back if the uh, if the Warriors win an NBA championship. If they don't, it's less certain. But the feeling I get, I've talked to Joe Lake of the majority owner earlier this year, as well as Bob Myers, and they seem to have the philosophy that, of course, they're going to look for any ways to make the team better, and it's not like they're considering anyone basically outside of Steph Curry and Kevin Durant to be untouchable. But I think they're very of the mind of how valuable it is to have continuity and the fact that when you look at all these guys, they're all in their prime. Steph Curry is the only one out of the four All-Stars that's 30 years old. Everyone else is still in their late 20s, and you know, the reporting for Marcus Thompson of the Athletic was right with, with Clay Thompson. The expectation is they're going to 
you know, start having uh, some serious talks to get him an extension at some point this offseason. And when I've talked with Clay earlier this year, you know, he was saying first and foremost, that's the biggest priority for him to come back to Golden State and he'll do whatever it takes from a monetary standpoint uh, to come back and, and make the dollar figure work. Um, but I think at the end of the day, regardless of whether the Warriors somehow lose this finals or that they win, I think the offseason narrative is, is going to be the same. They're going to make some serious changes to their bench because of just how inadequate they showed themselves in that Rocket series and the fact that you just look at it contractually. There's a lot of free agents on their bench when it comes to Nick Young and Zaza Pachulia, JaVale McGee, uh, David West. So I think it's almost by design. And it makes it easier for them in a way because it doesn't necessarily hinge on how well the team does in the postseason. Yeah, you know, you've covered Clay more than I have, but it doesn't it didn't surprise me at all to to read that he might be willing to take you know a little bit less money to to stick around. I mean, every time I've talked to that guy about you know the the, the notion of you know branching out, having his own team, all that you know kind of stuff that goes with being a a second fiddle on on a great team to guys like Steph and now KD. It, it just it doesn't seem to affect him in in ways that it might affect other guys. He doesn't you know want his own team in the same way, say like a Kyrie Irving, you know, want his own team. He seems very content and very comfortable in his own skin out there. Yeah, and I think on top of that, there have been times where Steph Curry and or Kevin Durant were on the floor this season with injuries, and if you look at those games. Clay Thompson did not play well. Um, he did not shoot the ball well. I think that he, you know he was kind of swarmed, obviously, more from defenses because they had the personnel to account for it now as opposed to worrying about Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. So even if he had the thought in his mind of, hey, I want to be the guy, and you know if, if I'm given that freedom, I can really expand my game, I think the data actually shows that there are limitations to that because – I don't want to say he's a beneficiary of playing with different all-stars, but a lot of his game kind of hinges on being able to be productive without having the ball a lot in his hands. And when he looked at that, you know, 60 point night in Indiana, like he held the ball for what, like 13, 15 seconds Mm -hmm. the entire game. So uh, if it ever got to the point where Clay suddenly had this epiphany change of heart, Bob Myers can basically just queue up that game footage and say, Hey, if you want your own team, this is what it's going to look like on a night-to-night basis. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get surprised, Mark. Maybe we'll get a a good series. Uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not expecting it, but maybe we, you know, I don't know. Who knows? A couple of years ago, we had maybe Draymond will kick somebody again. Maybe that'll happen, and, and we'll get him suspended and maybe make it a little bit closer. I don't know, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, you never rule it out with Draymond, right? But I think to his credit, this postseason, yeah. um, and this is you know all relative because it's still Draymond and he's emotional. But he hasn't he hasn't gotten ejected. He's only gotten a few technicals. And you look at this postseason. There were times when Rajon Rondo was really trying to bait him mm-hmm. uh, to to get thrown out, and, and Draymond restrained himself. So I think as much as Draymond's told me and others that he has no regrets for you know, doing what he did to LeBron after, you know, LeBron stepped over him in game four and he got suspended. Uh, I think that he would, won't repeat that episode ever again. Yeah, aside from the, 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 the shot he took at James Harden early in one of those games, there really hasn't been any kind of two-head-scratching a, a Draymond moment, which, uh, you know, bodes well for their chances to win this series. Uh, Mark, always appreciate the time, man. Thanks for joining me here on the podcast, and uh, we'll see you out there. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it as always. 
All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Jason Lloyd and Mark Medina for joining the show. As always, you can download archived episodes on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, really anywhere you can download podcasts. While you're there, post a comment, leave a rating. You know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.